What is Oracle buying? I'm wondering if for them, they're seeing this as a beta play in the era of GDPR and CCPA. Like if they're not a third party, they have to be a first party. I've watched football, the, you know, the feet football, the, you know, UK soccer, as you guys call it. The eventification of sports in the UK is taking the lead from the US. We might feel like we're overloaded with all of the ads, but the ads quality is generally much, much better. Yes, we are very lucky to be in the US and in the UK as well. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to uh, another episode of the 30-Minute CMO, our weekly series uh, called Ad Talk, where we discuss um, some of the most interesting topics or the topics that we found most interesting in the course of the week. As always, I'm joined by my friend and partner, Alex McNamara. Hey, Alex. Hey, Gosha. Nice to see you again. Likewise. Um, so we have quite uh, quite the slate of topics to discuss today, and actually they're going to be fairly global in nature, um, touching obviously in all things marketing, but they touch on politics and sports. Uh, we'll kick things off with a discussion around TikTok, obviously uh, in the world of marketing, in the world of tech, this is a very uh, hot topic, uh, as, we've, as we've heard, um, Oracle kind of coming out as that winning bidder. Um, we also want to uh, spend some time talking about sport, sports ownership. Sports is back. Hooray sports. Actually, sports has been back for some time, but I think with the NFL being back in the U.S., many people officially decided that this was when sports are back because NFL is sports for most. <laughs> <laughs> well, then uh, NHL sits in the corner and snips glue. Um, we will talk about the difference uh, in um, in the US version of pro sports versus the UK and kind of have a little bit of a discussion around that. And uh, keeping on this global theme, we'll also touch on differences, just the differences that are um, in the size of ad markets and what they bring to bear. Are we lucky to live in a big advertising market here in the US? Are we unlucky? What does that world look like uh, for people who, li who live in much smaller ad markets? So these are the things that we'll touch on. Uh, really excited to chat with you about these, but let's start with TikTok. And I guess the news, the big news here is um, that Oracle has been chosen as a technology partner for TikTok, which is very different than where this whole process started off. We heard kind of, you know, we obviously knew for some time that the Trump administration was very unhappy with uh, Chinese companies in general. Uh, Huawei a while ago was kind of the, the, the target. Um, and then all of a sudden, ByteDance, the owner of TikTok, becomes the, the, the target of the administration, literally in the, next, in the last couple of months. All of a sudden, Microsoft is, says, we're going to buy them. And everyone assumes that that deal is going to happen with the blessing of the administration. Then a whole bunch of other companies enter the fray, Oracle being one of them. Walmart was there, um, a few others. I personally did not expect Oracle to be the to be the winner in, in any sort of way, but especially not in the way that they are saying that they're going to partner with TikTok. So they're they're not buying TikTok. They are becoming a technology partner. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, under, I don't understand this because I, I remember we would, we would be talking about this for a while, and you know when you were when we were talking about like who's going to buy them, and it was like Microsoft, and then Walmart came in, and then Triller plus a huge backing because obviously they can't buy it uh, outright. Um, Oracle, I'm like who who's in this and who is buying it and why are these you know seemingly on the surface totally unrelated companies look like walmart buying tiktok makes to me no sense but um but when when we saw that uh, article come out last night with the uh, washington post saying oracle was chosen as the technology partner i think that's a really interesting way of saying it and you can combine that with what the south china morning post reported i think a couple of days ago saying ByteDance will categorically not sell the ag- algorithm it will not allow the source code the algorithm to leave a chinese company so like what is oracle buying and like and, and the algorithm is the basically the ai that chooses what video you see next on the on if if you use oracle you know what, what we mean but if you don't or if you use oracle huh if you use tiktok you know what we mean but if you don't it's basically uh kind of like what reels is now on instagram where you open the app, a video pops up. The next video that gets chosen for you is powered by the AI decisioning engine. And that's the thing that ByteDan says, uh-uh, we're not giving to you. Yeah. So it, yeah. So like, what is Oracle going to buy if it's not buying that? You know, what is the, I mean, you can copy the code. You know, they're saying like, it's, it's possible to be copied. You'll just lag behind and they'll give, you know, Instagram reels, whatever that is going to be, um, time to develop and, and refine it. So you know, I think for, for me anyway, the the terminology of technology partner, it sounds like they're not selling anything. And what they are going to do is partner with Oracle as the data warehouse for all of the TikTok US data, seemingly trying to, you know, go and, and not bypass, but like um, become more US friendly to try and stop the negative especially around the around the government of the te- the data living in 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 china so what it, which, what it which, looks which, like which it never lived yeah. which it never lived because it, it didn't it lived in singapore and virginia so so you know it, it but more publicly it looks like oracle is going to be the um the data warehouse the the storage for all of this by dance will continue to own tiktok It'll continue to own the own the data, own the and own more importantly for them probably the revenue source of when they start selling or like really really monetizing. I know um, the lot of they've been really pushing um, the uh, business ads. Uh, I even got one. I think I told this story already. I got one in the Gmail. I saw it on TV. Like they're really trying to push small businesses to run ads on TikToks, like they're, you know, they don't want to lose that revenue stream now that they've captured so much of the US market. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The whole, the whole like kerfuffle is over data, right? You know, know, the administration does not want China to have that data. Oracle is an interesting choice because Oracle is basically the biggest or one of the biggest, um, data aggregators out there, they have made a very concerted effort in the last six years to build the Oracle Data Cloud, um, which started with the acquisition of one of the biggest um, data marketplaces called BlueKai at the time. And they've built uh, this ecosystem around it. This ecosystem has been sort of coming under strain and been getting partially dismantled. In fact, the this, this data cloud um, is 
somewhat becoming a taboo in countries in Europe due to GDPR. And so Oracle's been shutting down some of those um, offerings that, that, that they peddle to advertisers. So here's Oracle uh, going and saying, hey, we're going to be a technology partner, maybe a data storage partner for you at TikTok. So I'm wondering if for them, they're seeing this as a data play where they suck in um, just an insane amount of um, data from uh, you and your interactions on, uh, on, the, on the platform, merge it with all of this other data that they have um, been collecting over the years about you and just build out this insane profile. Um, and all in the name of protecting our privacy. See, like that's where it doesn't make sense because I don't trust Oracle to just sit there and play the dumb storage game. Like I think that no for them, this is, this is the angle. It's to enrich uh, data, especially in the, in the era of GDPR and CCPA. Like if they're not a third party, they have to be a first party. And where do you want to be a first party data, provi- um, data, data provider from? Like social media and that? You know, this is the once in a lifetime opportunity. Like they can't buy Facebook. They can buy, they can, for a fraction of the cost of TikTok, basically get access to all of that data. And they've been cozying up to the Trump administration from the beginning. So they're probably saying, hey, let's get the most lucrative bid for ourselves, not worry uh, about anything else and rely on our relationship with the Trump administration to basically get the blessing. And between you you and me and people listening to this podcast, probably hope for some ignorance on the part of the administration in terms of what all of that means. Dude, you just blew my mind with that, with that connection. That is, that's such a, that is such a smart thing for them to do. Uh, if they're really, yeah, like you said, if, you, if you're not going to be able to take third party data and you have to take in, you have to have your own first party data, having all of that data, you know, the Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook equivalent, um, especially for that, current generation or current sort of audience um, segment on TikTok and the amount of work they're doing to try and get in, you know, over 25 year olds, that's going to be such a huge um, set of first party data that they can match to what they have right now. And really, um, I mean, you, you can't think uh, they do anything but leverage that and try and, and try and monetize it by, you know, potentially selling to other people like, like everyone else is doing right now. I'll blow your mind even further. Um, one, of the comp- one of the companies Oracle bought uh, is called Data Science. I mean, you could imagine what a company called datascience.com does, which is take <laughs> yeah. that, uh, if you recall, so TikTok's uh, North American, I guess, would be headquarters is in Culver City neighborhood of Los Angeles. Yep. A seven minute walk from that is where data science is located in that Oracle building that you know. Oh yeah. That's yeah. where they are. I'm not saying anything, but how convenient would that be for them to be right next to TikTok, sucking in all that data, having fun with I mean, it. I mean, the, the closer location, the faster the data transfer, right? That's how it works. I, I believe so. <laughs> so yeah, wow. very, very interesting. Uh, that's we'll going to be you. really interesting. So like on the 15th, that's going to be the, the, the government deadline on the TikTok sale, um, which at time of recording is tomorrow. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens next. Because I mean, that would allow TikTok to stay active in the US uh, rather than shutting, like, shutting the app down until they get a resolution. 
Yeah, uh, I know that um, now this is going to be discussed in the FICUS meeting and they're going to make a, a recommendation to the president. So we will see and it probably will resolve in some manner this week. Um, so stay tuned for that and we'll obviously analyze the outcome of anything that happens on the next podcast. Yeah, Gorge will continue to blow my mind on uh, his mind mapping. So I've got a, <laughs> I've got a topic um, now. So the sports ownership. So I think from a... From a, uh, uh, a expat view, having been in the U.S. for four and three quarter years now, um, I've had a really interesting sort of experience with with sports. Um, you know, I've I've watched football, the you know the feet football, the you know UK soccer as you guys call it, live. I've watched it on TV in the UK. I've watched it in the pub in the UK. Now I've been here. Um, well, I also was in the UK. I watched NFL games there. So I watched the Vikings against the Steelers where the Vikings beat the Steelers in a very high scoring game. That's where I became a Vikings fan, Skull Vikes. Um, also watched the Patriots against the Niners, I think. So I've had my experience with, the, um, with, with both. Um, and coming here and watching what it's like on TV, the NFL on TV, baseball on TV, and the, the, the differences between... Um, how they operate in terms of the focal point of the experience is vastly different. Um, and then like for me, the main, the main difference that I would, I would compare it, well, explain it as in the UK, you go to a game, you, you go to the pub beforehand, you have a beer or several, then you go to the game and you watch two halves of football, uh, 45 minutes each with a beer in the middle of 15 minutes. And then you go. And it, the whole experience in stadium is about two hours-ish, give or take some time getting in and getting out. Here, you go to an event, a festival, a day fest, day-long festival, and a game happens on the, on the field. Um, where the, in, the, in, the, in the case of football, about 14 minutes worth of game, right? Yeah, about 14 minutes worth of game per hour happens on the field. And what and, and like what I thought was really interesting is how that eventification—that's a word now—the eventification of sports in the UK is taking the lead from the US. And I think you know it doesn't have everything to do with it, but I feel like the ownership of uh, US ownership of UK teams or UK sports clubs. Um, is is really helping that like crunky owns the rams and arsenal um the glazers own manchester united the chappie who owns um the red Sox also owns liverpool so like that that is happening and to try and pull it into the ad talk focus the marketing that goes around it and what they leverage from all of those events um, to try and drive fan you know, subscription to their teams and to try and drive sales um, of merch everywhere across the world. They've really had to focus on, you know, not just top performing players and teams, but all of the, you know, the fluff and the bells and whistles that go around it, um, which feels like the very American way of doing sports. Well, <laughs> Yeah, it's a uh, it's 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 a machine, and and you know I here's here's my first of all my my my, my personal sports uh, fan um, comment on this. In 
in Europe and I think in those parts of Europe where this um, eventualization has not happened quite to the extent yet in other parts of the world as well, South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, where you go and see matches, um, you actually you actually realize how authentic the games come across, um, what yeah. it's like to feel the energy of the crowd. I think that um, in this race to commercialize um, these events, you start losing this authenticity. And I think the owners would be wise to um, strike that balance. It's very, it's very hard to uh, forego the lure of all of this because obviously with each, each new thing that they introduce, there is more jerseys that are sold and more concessions and things like that. But um, I think the NFL, if you think about what goes into an NFL game, um, it's a whole day event for most for most fans, whether they're watching from home or going to the games themselves. It's the tailgating, which is hours long, right? It's the uh, you know it's the actual event with its halftime shows, the pregame entertainment, um, yeah. and then obviously in cities where that's possible, it's the it's the subsequent bars and and, and whatnot. So, um, yeah, I um, I think. I think what they're trying to do is open the game up to more fans, make it more accessible. And so if you don't care about soccer or football, you're actually going to, they want you to come to a game and still have fun. And yeah. that's their angle. Um, how can we make you a fan of the experience if you're not a fan of the game? Yeah. And I think, I think it's, I think what you said about authenticity is really important because, you know, and I, and I don't, and I, this is where I, my experience in the U S is, is kind of lacking on, on the sports front. You know, we, we went and watched, I think baseball for me is probably the most that's not quite commercialized yet, maybe because it's already, you know, four hours long and, you know, it, it takes some, some level of concentration to, to know what's going on. But, um, but like, a lot of the you know, people in the UK and you know, I get this more from my friends and blogs and your know, firsthand experience now, but the, they feel like it's becoming less and less authentic and it's less about the game. It's more about the business. Where can we drive revenue? Like Arsenal have, ju have just released you know, the yearly three shirt drop of the home kit, away kit and third kit. Then they now they're releasing as like part of the drops, their training shirt for uh, home for home games, away games, and then now also the training shirts for the European games. Like that's what six six new shirts that you that you'd be able to buy. And whilst it's great that you're able to have a variety of shirts, it just strikes me as another. It just doesn't feel authentic. It just feels like they're just trying to sell you stuff and sell you more things. And like we we talked about this. Like you're not compared to the to US jerseys, you're basically becoming a free billboard for their shirt sponsor. Like you, you, your, your shirt is not an Arsenal shirt, it's a Fly Emirates shirt, and you're paying for the privilege of being a walking billboard. Yeah, I always found that to be fascinating that um, I could not actually tell uh, <laughs> the, the teams apart because many of them are sponsored by the same um, brand or you know gulf airline yeah. yes that is so true that's so true <laughs> like who do you Arsenal, support again? real madrid and milan all have the same emirates shirt and i do get really confused when you just glimpse it and you just see this the title sponsor the shirt sponsor on the on the shirt i do remember one of the craziest marketing moves in terms of uh kit has been uh was pulled off by the national hockey league several years ago uh it used to be that white jerseys 
uh, were home jerseys and dark jerseys were away jerseys. And so people would buy all the home stuff. And then yeah. one season they said, nope, we're just going to reverse it. We're going to make the away jerseys, the home jerseys, and the home jerseys, the away jerseys. And everyone's like, what? And was <laughs> they were basically forced to go and buy the other jerseys. And then they came out and said, and now we're going to introduce the third jerseys. So it's, oh. yeah, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's clearly, it's, 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 a, it's a marketing move. People want to support their teams. They, there's something about all wearing the same colors as, as the people around you and kind of blending in and being part of the whole. And I think, yeah, the American sports machine, the Cronkies of the world, they're, you know, they, they play us like a string. They, 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 yeah. they, they know how to do this. What's interesting, you know, I've been watching the pretty excellent, and I know you're going to have an allergic reaction to this, but a pretty excellent series on Amazon Prime called um, All or Nothing, Tottenham, Tottenham Hotspur. Excellent series. Excellent series. Terrible, terrible portion of the series, but excellent series. <laughs> and those uh, bunch of well, they, and they, they, you know, they build themselves a billion-dollar stadium uh, in one of the poorest areas of London, um, and they're using it uh, as not just a football pitch, but also as an NFL pitch uh, or, or or field. Yeah. And uh, you see Roger Goodell coming there, and clearly, you know, to do that, it's not just a matter of having the pitch; it's the it's having the infrastructure to support NFL level of entertainment and eventfulness. Clearly, they're not just going to use it for the three NFL games played in London. They're going to use it for all of yeah. the games they themselves play. So if they're going to be doing it and they're not even the top two, three teams, the other teams are going to be doing this as well. Yeah, they're, they're the worst. They're the worst, just in general. They haven't won anything in like 50 years. They build this ludicrous new stadium. Um, but Arsenal did the same thing that we did it in, in 2000. We finished the stadium in 2006 and they knew that they couldn't afford like all of these teams out. The, the, uh, the rules in the U S are different, but in the UK, you don't get, you know, as, as much of the, like the local government spot, like paying for the stadiums. So, you know, we built the stadium, but we have to host events there. So in the, in the, you know, the off season, um, where there's no football played, they host um, massive stadium concerts. And they'll have they'll have like you know one two two nights every every week of massive different bands coming into play, um, and they can they can monetize their um, all of the bars, the restaurants. They can you know sell tickets. Like they're they're, they're generating revenue, which they have to have to pay off the stadium debt. So you're like you know it's it's kind of it's kind of the same thing. Like where can you get additional revenue streams when your, your games aren't being played? I, um, I was lucky to work in, in this field for about three years um, and working with a lot of the sports teams, um, especially the NBA and NHL franchises who frequently share their, the arenas. You see um, the math that goes behind this and kind of how they market to the fans. Um, and so um, for instance, you will have teams who will, sell tickets that are below the league average and you think great like they are pricing their tickets to make them affordable for everyone who comes in but they're not doing it for altruistic or community purposes because the minute you step across uh that um you know the entryway and into the arena you're hit with just eye bleeding prices for just about everything and we know that things are expensive in arenas but they know that once you're in, you're, that's it, you're a captive audience. You are like part of the entertainment that's sort of like popcorn in a movie theater. You know, even if yeah. you don't normally eat popcorn, you're going to buy it in a movie theater. Just, just the same as if you're coming to a, uh, a game, you're going to buy yourself a, a beer or a Coke and, and a hot dog. 
a beer at one of the arenas that prices their tickets below market value was $19 for a tall, tall boy of Coors Light. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, right? it's, yeah. And you're it's, not, and you're not, and you're not just having one because no one comes Definitely to a not. game for one beer, right? So all of a sudden you're about a no. hundred bucks in a hole just, just in Coors, <laughs> Coors Lights. So that, that's interesting, right? So like pr- pricing, pricing is one of the biggest marketing tools actually that the teams have um, and how yeah. they get people in. And then everything else, not just the concessions, not just the merch, the data that they collect on you, everything in these modern arenas now is digitized. So um, your app, uh, whether you're using a Ticketmaster app or, or an app from the team that is powered by uh, something like a Ticketmaster, everything is working with beacons. Uh, those beacons collect information where you are, where your seat is. They sell that now to uh, sponsors who can then message you directly while you're in your seat with time relevant information, right? So again, you become a commodity that they monetize and then it's, 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 it's better for them to bring you in at a low cost of a ticket price because then they can sell you and sell things to you nine ways to Sunday. The other thing that's really interesting, uh, and I'm not, I'm not sure if it's happening in the UK, but teams are buying all the land around the arenas and building up that bar and entertainment infrastructure so that people go and drink at the bars they own before the game, yeah. go and spend mm-hmm. money at restaurants they own after the game. They're creating entertainment th- districts that are 100% owned by them. That's what the owners are investing their, um, their profits into, which I find to be a fascinating thing. I think it's a fairly recent um, development. Clearly takes a ton of capital. Um, happening here in the U.S., especially in secondary markets. Actually, in L.A., they pioneered this with the L.A. Live thing around yeah. uh, Staples Center. But uh, it's probably going to be uh, something that happens in the U.K. I know it happens with the O2 Arena out in Greenwich. So yeah. it probably happens with Wembley and think, others. Yeah, I think I think it's harder in the U.K. and because the most of the stadiums are already in established neighborhoods. And, they, right. and they're basically like in the middle of someone's back garden. Like Fenway. Because yeah, like yeah, like just like Fenway, you know, Arsenal Highbury is now a block of flats, but that like that was like literally in the middle of a whole like neighborhood, and you kind of turn a corner down a row of houses, and then boom, there's a massive stadium there. So it's it's because they've been around for longer, kind of like Fenway. You you had them build around, and they were just like neighborhood sports teams. Uh, but like the new uh, stadium in LA, the one that the Rams played at. The Cronky uh, Dome today, yeah, the Cronky Dome. Um, I mean that that looks amazing. It looks incredible, and it was hugely impressive feat of engineering to have that open air feel, but be an enclosed stadium, um, which is which is kind of where all the stadiums seem to be going right now. But they've also built like LA Live, that whole entertainment area around what is a very sort of barren part of part of LA. So they they you know encouraging everyone to get there early. They've got all of the bars, restaurants, everything for people to be there early, to stay there late. So you're not just spending $19 on a, on a cause light in the stadium. You're spending all of it in and around the whole day. So, you know, your, two, you know, your, you know, your ticket is, you know, X, X hundred dollars or depending on which, which game you're going to, plus all the food and drink you're getting, you're funneling it straight into your, into your team, which, you know, if you're a big, big fan, great that's that's huge for you if you're not and you're just going for like the spectacle of of a game you know it's it's different 
Yeah, um, uh, that's, I think, the unfortunate part is that I think a family of four going out to their first experience yeah. will be surprised to walk out $1,000 lighter in their pocket after they spend all that money on tickets, parking, um, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's $1,000 for a family of four. I'm sure, that, I'm, I'm sure that's not an unrealistic thing to say. No way. I mean, I was looking at, at, at tickets and, you know, some games like the cheapest you can get is like 180 bucks and you are way up way back you can barely see the field you know and you're still paying you know a lot of money to go sit in the nosebleeds so yeah it's conceivable you spend a thousand bucks just on tickets pro tip go see the chargers play same stadium probably much cheaper <laughs> yeah. well i mean like so your point about getting people in do you think also they set they they charge less for the tickets so that you become a fan and then go and buy the merch. Like you're not, they're not going to make your um, money on the ticket sales, but the lifetime value of you going to a game and enjoying the experience, you know, before the Clippers you know, started getting good this, this year or the last year, that you could get tickets for like $28 to go watch them play. And then people become Clippers fans because of that. Then they buy the, the jerseys, they go to games, they try and, you know, they get the subscriptions to watch it. Like, is that a way that you can, you know, a cost per acquisition of a, of a new fan? Is, do, you think, do you think that's something that's factored into that? Yeah, I mean, probably it, it, I mean, they consider, you know, <laughs> who they are and uh, as a team versus everyone else, uh, what the market has to offer in terms of alternatives. Um, but also all of these teams, all of them, without exception, get most of their revenue from TV, TV rights. Um, yeah. Which is why all of them are playing in front of empty stadiums because for them to miss out on the TV revenue is a lot more tragic than to sit out uh, and um, not pay, you know, for the stadiums to be open. So yeah. I don't know what the proportional kind of math there is, but I I wager that more than half of the revenue for each team comes from uh, a TV contract. Which is why it's so tragic when a team in the uk gets demoted from the premier league because it's like hundreds of millions of pounds worth of money just walks out of their front door it it quite literally is and like and if you take it arsenal i keep going back to arsenal for as an example but you know when when coronavirus hit and they stopped playing the biggest concern was the broadcasting rights um having to be repaid and the clubs having to pay back the Premier League, who have then have to pay back Sky and BT Sport because they've already they've already given out the 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 money because they assumed the season was going to go to completion. It's like the the main focus was not on providing the games for the fans. The main focus was was protecting revenue um, and making sure games were played. No one cared about the the the, the players. They were like a um, collateral damage. Um, for this like they wanted to have the players play as entertainment so that the clubs could make the money so Kroenke could get his you know 150 million 200 million in tv revenue um, and didn't have to pay it back but if you look at the like you said the if you get relegated from the premiership you lose that premiership money which is a big deal but also that's why arsenal you know, were fighting top four was seen as a trophy like it's a, it's a joke between the arsenal fans like top four was a trophy because you were in the champions league and champions league meant you had additional games to play outside of the premier league season right you would get additional tv money if you progress through the different stages uh from the group stage to the knockout stage you got additional money it's worth like 40 million bucks 40 million pounds 
a season. So you don't get Champions League football. You lose, you know, what is a really good signing each year. And then you go into the Europa League. You know, I think I think the revenue is something like twenty million. Still nothing to to sniff at. Not not um, Champions League money. But then you lose the um, you lose Europa League, and you don't have that income. Like, and that really affects from a business point of view how you can conduct yourself and how you can rebuild your team. And I think that's like a really interesting. Um, way that fans want the game, want want the clubs to um, to be for the fans, but the owners have to run it like a business. I think this is something that I've been thinking about a lot. Is when a fan, when a player leaves a club, all the fans are in uproar. But like you know, in, at the end of the day, they're a you know they're a, a salaried employee. Like no one gets upset when the CEO of TikTok leaves. No one's in uproar that their favorite social media app is going to have a change in direction and change in product. But you know if you know, when Thierry Henry leaves or Cesc Fabregas leaves, that's huge because you've built that connection with the with the player. I've always thought that was really interesting from a psychological point of view of how fans see a business and feel ownership over them. Like I don't feel any ownership over Apple. And I've got an Apple Apple products all over the place, but like I, you know, Johnny Ive leaving was like, oh, okay, cool, whatever. Yeah, but you buy Apple products for their functionality. You buy an Arsenal jersey with an Emirates logo on it because you're a fan, and I think that's what makes fandom irrational. And yeah, um, you know, that's what makes sports sports fascinating, and it's a story of haves and have-nots. Um, yeah. Look, we've been on this uh, international theme, kind of bouncing between the U.S. and the U.K. on this topic, and I actually wanted to one one last topic ask ask for for your thoughts on this as someone who's lived in uh, Asia, in the U.K., in the U.S. Um, I've had uh, time that you know I've spent time in in the U.K. and then other parts of Europe as well. Do you think we're blessed? Like, do we think we're lucky to uh, to sort of live in a large ad market? And I know that to most people this would this question doesn't make any sense, but you know, we get treated with ads that are, um, you know, they're timely, uh, they're creative. Um, if you think about the stuff that like Nike puts out and other brands put out, you know, they resonate uh, against the social commentary of what's going on in our world um, in this particular day, uh, moment in time. In you know, and and I think about this, and I kind of think about my time living in the UK and um, and in other parts of Europe. And uh, that doesn't happen as much over there. Um, you know, it's um, people are treated to far less creativity uh, than I think we are. And I just wanted to get your thoughts. Like, is your experience, does your experience mirror mine? And what do you think of all of that? Uh, to answer your question in, in one word, yes, yes. We are very lucky to be in the US and in the UK as well. I think for us, with those two, depending on the the companies that um, that are advertising, the UK is mainly the the European hub for most of the companies and mo- where most of the ad budget is held. Um, I have experience on both sides from the UK and the US of making global or regional ads um, for uh, for big brands that then get shipped out through the different countries and and you know it's it's made it's not made with your country first but because the people making it are in that country and that's where the majority of the budget's going that's where you have to prioritize the messaging so you know when i was making stuff in in the uk um and it was going into italy france germany spain portugal everywhere else um you would you would get 
local co um, consultation in terms of does it make sense? Does it resonate? Uh, is it offensive? But you wouldn't be making ads for that country. So you would end up with a really great, you know, 60 second and 30 second ad that would run in the UK. It would then get transcreated through our transcreation partners and then, and then shipped out. And what I thought was also a really interesting thing is the, the budgets generally were less in those local markets. So they were very focused on bottom funnel, uh, very tactical conversion. Um, and if you're thinking like car ads, it's the 15 seconds or 20 seconds plus 10 second bumper where you have a wonderful brand level, very creative messaging where you've had creative directors and art directors and copywriters sweating for weeks over the perfect, you know, the perfect imagery, the perfect, uh, the perfect words to express what it is to make you fall in love with the brand. And then bang on the last 10 seconds, it's like, come down to your local dealer and buy this car at, you know, 20% off and we'll throw in a, uh, you know, a, a mug warmer for you. And it's like that, that way is why you don't get a lot of great local advertising because the brands are executing on, on the local level and they, and they have to hit sales. Same in, same in the US. Um, we were making ads in the US that would then get pushed out. And because you're going global, you've got a dilution in what the messaging can be. You can talk about the product, but you can't talk about contextual relevance within the different countries because you've got, you know, let's say you've got $2 million to make seven 30 second ads or something, you know, right. then you, you have to make it work for everyone without being contextually relevant. You would have a couple of like donut holes that you could fill with your local messaging and like what is important to them about the, the product, but you don't get that good advertising except in the market where you're in, where generally there's the most money because that's what an HQ is. Then you've got you have 10X of what the, the media budget is. So you're like, well, if the media budget's that much more, then we have to make sure the messaging is right for this country. So like, that's why you know, you're, you're definitely right in that there's a difference in quality but it's not for the lack of the, the market. It's because there's only so much money to go around. There's only so much production budget. There's only so much time you can make. And there's only so much media budget. You've got to focus on the priorities of where you're going to generate the most sales and where the media budget's going to go. So the US and UK, in my experience, um, generally have you know, better quality advertising because that's just where the HQ are and that's where the media budgets are held and the, and the production budgets. Yeah, you know, I think I, I think my experience. Uh, well, I'll 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 just share an example of kind of going back to sports um, World Cups, uh, the FIFA World Cups, right? Uh, usually, that's when advertisers uh, introduce uh, like a Super Bowl style brand spot that's you know built around soccer, but it's a global audience. And um, I remember watching the World Cup. Um, I was in South Africa right after the World Cup happened there, and then we were watching the um, the World Cup in Russia, and. You see someone like Adidas uh, making uh, a World Cup ad, and they know that they have to make it also relevant to the country where the World Cup is hosted. But that country, despite the fact that it's hosting the World Cup, is just like it's not the big market for them, right? Like South Africa is yeah. not a big market for them. Russia is not a big market for them. Qatar will be the same thing. They're not a big market. And so they, they go through these pains of creating a brand spot that is like, it's so all-encompassing that it's just like completely vanilla at that point, right? And yeah. they're just like, it's... It has no point. 
it slots in um, local celebrities um, where it can, and then it pulls them out and they, you know, and they go into another market and they slot in a local celebrity there and they kind of just try to weave these things together. And I remember just watching it and thinking like, you know, this, um, this kind of sucks for people who are living in the, in the countries where they're seeing those ads because they never see anything that's relevant for them. Um, they're yeah. seeing sort of the most diluted, the most vanilla, the most bland message. Nothing is culturally relevant. The advertising has, you know, a lot of times here in the U.S. and in the U.K. as well, we'll talk about how advertising taps into a cultural moment. Uh, yeah. We talk about Wendy's, you know, where is the beef campaign. We talk about the John Lewis Christmas ads that are just a tearjerker each and every year. Um, that just doesn't happen in, uh, in most other countries because these big global brands uh, will, will not be able to create these bespoke uh, commercials um, even during the peak times. Um, so I think, yeah, I think we are lucky to live here in a sense because we do get to um, have ads that tap into the zeitgeist um, of, of, yeah. of where we are. I imagine the same is probably true for something like China with a big population, maybe countries um kind of like japan which is an enigma to me because the market there is completely monopolized by one agency so it's interesting to yeah. see how that's done but um yeah um you know we might we might feel like we're overloaded with all of the ads but the ads the quality is generally much much better yeah i mean but do you think that the ads for local the local big brands will be better um, uh, you, and, and, and this is a very difficult question because you don't know necessarily what a big, um, uh, the big local brand is or what their relevance is to other people within the country. Cause you know, you don't live there, but in the UK, you have a lot of the UK brands advertising and they have like top, top ads, but in, in France or Italy or Spain, where you would have local big companies like the local telcos, um the local i guess like oil companies they seem to do a lot of ads where they focus specifically on their market because they don't have the same relevance or if they are you know a spanish company advertising in the uk you could get the reverse do you think that in that case they may have better advertising and we're just less aware of it because we don't we don't know the relevance of all the context yeah i think i'm talking about global global brands i think when it comes to local brands and the countries you're mentioning have some some amazing companies based there right like where whether it's france or spain um yeah. germany you know it's 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 it's, it's hard for me to say um those 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 can be transnational companies as well and they're all about dollars and cents and euros and cents as well right they're yeah. not going to spend a lion's share of their budget on a relatively small population if they know that they can go like the quality of the of an ad that mercedes makes for the united states is not going to be a lesser quality ad than they make for their home market in germany and yeah. i remember seeing um during the olympics in 2012 BA, I was working at Ogilvy at the time and they did the ad for BA and BA went all out, made this completely splashy brandy spot all around the Olympics. But BA's own advertising in the UK generally is very DR focused and it's, it, they do very little in terms of brand building. And that's what the UK public tends to get as their usual fare. So I assume that this is probably the case. And look, you lived in Hong Kong for quite some time, right? Like that's a wealthy, um, I guess, nation state city whatever the definition yeah. of it is now um did you see a lot of amazing uh, advertising from local brands on a consistent basis no it was all terrible advertising in hong kong is is awful it's it's honestly it's some of the it's awful it is just 
I, I and I think it's just because of the way that the the advertising culture there is very focused on um, really dr and offer focus, and like they don't care about building brands as much as they do care about selling stuff. Um, and and also Hong Kong is not always the 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 HQ, or and it's also not also the HQ for a lot of the agencies. You know, some some have their their offices there, and uh, and and mainly because the budgets are smaller because you're spread out across APAC. Um, Hong Kong is not that important as a market. The the ads that do get made there are chip shop ads, which is essentially they make an ad as spec for a brand. They go to the brand and say, "Hey, we shot you an ad. Do you want it?" And they're like, "Well, I guess it's free." You know, and they're like, "Well, can we run it? You know, can you can you pay for to run it?" And like, well, we don't have that. We don't have that earmarked budget. Like, well, we'll run it on like you know channel ten at four in the morning, and then they enter it in a in a can award and try and win awards through that. Like one of the big global agencies, and I won't name names, but their whole Hong Kong operation was geared solely to lose money so they could make make ads and win awards, and they were funded from the very top to win as many Asia awards as possible. They didn't care about, you know, making good advertising. They cared about making really, really creative advertising. Some of it borderline lunacy, but it wasn't for people to to like buy stuff. So in that way, like it's either really bad or it's like not real advertising. And I don't think that you can you can have advertising that's not real, meant to actually work for a brand and work hard for a brand. I think at the end of the day, the size of the market and its ability to spend money. The population yeah. to spend money dictates basically the quality of advertising that uh, the population receives, and that's why, um, that's why we see what we see. Yeah, well, that's and, uh, and, yeah. And sorry, and that, and that's why the U.S. media budgets are so gargantuan compared to the U.K. And like the media spend, um, because there are so many more people here, and there's so many different kinds of people here. You got to you got to reach in so many different ways. Like the media spends here are you know ten fifteen x of what you'd spend in the UK, and it's you know and it's it's it blows my mind how much money goes into marketing in in its totality here compared to where I was where you'd have you know a few million in in media spend in the UK and be like that's a pretty big media spend like here a few million is like whatever we'll just put it in such. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's uh, it's the third largest country by population, and it's um, you know, un- a lot of times people say that um, in Europe, the UK agencies markets like work on making ads for the rest of Europe, but like that's not a homogenous that's not a homogenous population. You have to adapt it here. The population is not homogenous, but we are all living in one country, and so there's some commonality there. So you can you cannot you can do these. Uh, kinds of spends against um, a single set of creative. Um, so it is, it is, it is interesting. So next time you see an amazing ad from a Nike or a Coke or a McDonald's, um, and you think that you're overloaded with advertising, just at least Feel consider lucky. that you're you're overloaded with pretty good advertising. Uh, not yeah. Bob's mattresses. Not Bob's mattresses. Not, no. Not but everything. But my pillow. Yeah. Um, Alex. It was wonderful discussing these things with you. Uh, We have many more topics saved for next time. Loads. Thoroughly enjoyable. Uh, So until then, uh, thanks uh, thanks for stopping by. Thanks for the ad talk.